me this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 15. We'll be reading the first nine verses of chapter 15. word of our Lord from the Gospel of John. I am the true vine, and my Father is the farmer. Every branch in me not bearing fruit, He takes it away. And everyone bearing fruit, He prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already pruned because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch is not able to bear fruit of itself if it does not abide in the vine, so neither can you if you do not abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, this one bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do not a thing. If anyone does not remain in me, He is cast out as a branch, is dried up, is gathered and cast into the fire, and is burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, you shall ask whatever you will, and it shall come to pass for you. In this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you shall become my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given to us, your servants, grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal trinity. And in the power of your divine majesty to worship the unity. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory, O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit live and reign one God forever and ever. Amen. It's always a, um, it's always an awkward situation when a culturally popular holiday falls on what happens also to be one of the very important church holidays. Such a thing has happened this morning. We celebrate Father's Day. But as the church, we also celebrate Trinity Sunday. And as I was thinking through the, uh, 
what to do in a situation like this over the course of the last few weeks, I began thinking, you know, the two are pretty, um, are pretty related. One is obviously primary and the other secondary. But we'll get to that in just a moment. Please notice the, um, the title of the message this morning, The Apple's Proximity to the Tree. You've no doubt heard the idiom, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And by it, we suggest that children are an awful lot like their parents. We speak of children being the apple of their parents' eye, and we speak of them as being not far from the tree from which they have fallen. It's interesting to think about the implications of a fruit, a tree, a fall, and the likeness that we have to our Father. If you think back to the book of Genesis and the fall related to a tree and the taking of a fruit, there are a number of um, unspoken implications that, uh, that, that I could have this morning, but I will keep them unspoken. You know, that statement that uh, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree is actually a theologically profound statement. It's an expression that we make to kind of encapsulate a, a concept. And when we think about the life of Jesus and who He understood Himself to be, we speak of His identity we recognize that He cannot know Himself apart from His relationship to His eternal Father. His identity is tied up in the fact that He is the eternally begotten Son. All throughout John's Gospel, you have Him making reference to Himself as being the one who has been sent. And He speaks of His Father as the one who has sent Him. In fact, His identity is so tied up in His eternal Father that He says, I don't even speak my own words. I simply say what I hear Him say. And I don't even do my own things. I simply do what He has me to do. Jesus' self-understanding is so much a part of His understanding of His Father that the two cannot be undone. He is dependent upon His Father. He looks to His Father. He faithfully obeys His Father. And He's so much like His Father that when His disciples said, show us the Father, He said, don't you yet get it? If you have seen Me, you've seen the Father. You know what God the Father is like. You know how He behaves. You know how He has compassion and mercy. You know His strength and His might if you've seen Me. He said anyone who rejects Him has rejected the Father also. And anyone who has Him has the Father also. 
Jesus' identity is so bound up in who He is in relationship to His eternal Father that the two cannot be understood separately. In John's account of the Gospel here in these, not the last chapters, but these latter chapters of, of chapters 14 through 17, Jesus is spending time with His disciples on the night He's betrayed. and He speaks an awful lot of His Father, but He then begins to speak an awful lot of the Holy Spirit. You remember from last week celebrating Pentecost, and you remember uh, from the week before celebrating the ascension of Christ, that Jesus promises His disciples He would not leave them fatherless. He would not leave them as orphans. He would come to them and that He and the Father would come to them through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And in these chapters, He's talking an awful lot about the triune nature of God, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son is there among them. The Spirit will come and be poured out upon them. And this is happening because of the will of the Father. And so in the early life of the church, in those first few hundred years of church history, the church is wrestling with, what are we to make, what are we to make of this? We know there's only one God. We're, we're, we're good monotheists in that regard, but we, we are compelled also to, to celebrate and to worship this man, Jesus. And we know He has come from God, and we know that He in some, somehow is God. God, and yet we recognize that He speaks of His Father who is God. And He promises His Spirit who is God. And so that's how, in a uh, very, very concise uh, summary of 400 years of history, those are the questions and those are the, 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 the paradoxical equations that the church was having to wrestle with to develop this doctrine of the Trinity. Now let me say something about that term doctrine. I, I really, I, re, I regretfully refer to the Trinity as a doctrine. Because when we think of doctrine, we think of like a list of teaching points. Like a bullet point system of what are the items to cover in, in the way we think of God. And truthfully, the Trinity is not just some item to cover in a list of items to cover because if God is indeed triune Trinity is who he is it's not just a point that we make about him it's tied up in his identity it's not merely an attribute of who, of God it's not something he does or something he can do it's not something he at, he has it's who he is and so, Trinity Sunday is a Sunday that we celebrate really the totality of the Christian faith. This is, this is the sum of who we are and the sum of what we believe about God. He is Father, Son, and Spirit eternally. And it is this God who has redeemed us because it is this God who has made us in His image. It is this one God who somehow in the mystery of the Trinity is able to say, let us make man 
in our image. If you recognize our logo as a church, you recognize that the Trinity is an important part of who we are as a congregation. We celebrate the presence of a God who is triune. And we live as His people. There's something... um, There's something in that statement, in that idiom, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, that says not only something about who God is, but it says something also about who we are. We are people made in God's image. And our identity is tied up in the fact that we are image bearers of the triune God. He made us to be like Him. The, um, the term that is used for image is simply the term icon. A picture. In fact, um, in the ancient world, it was the same term that was used by the pagan nations to speak of their idols. The same exact term. The scriptures tell us in the book of Genesis that God made little idols of himself in creating Adam and Eve and their offspring. To look in the eyes of another person, your spouse, your parent, your best friend, your worst enemy, is to look into the eyes of someone made to be like God. Made to be not far from the tree. And when you think of parenting, on a day like Father's Day, when you think of fathering, and you think about the fact that the the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, you realize that God has woven into our identity as people made in His image the possibility of transforming others and forming in them the character of God. We understand what a family is better when we understand who God is. When we speak of God as Father and when God has revealed Himself as Father, 
He's not saying, oh, I'm kind of like what you have. You understand a family, I'm kind of like that. Instead, it works the other way around. God is the archetype of the family. We understand who we are and who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to interact because of who He is and what He is and how He interacts. Not the other way around. We don't even understand ourselves apart from Him. We don't understand how to make a family work apart from Him. We don't understand how to love others apart from Him. Not just because He sets the ground rules, which He does, but because He models for us what we are to be like. He shows us love and faithfulness. Jesus told His disciples that He was the vine. That they're the branches. And that His Father... It's funny, uh, if, you, if you look at the Greek text, it says that His Father is George. I, who knew that was God the Father's name? He's a farmer. The Greek term George. Um, it was kind of startling to see that. And my father is George? His father is the farmer or the gardener, the vine dresser. You know, our, some of our modern translations say vine dresser because we realize, oh, he's talking about the vine. So yeah, he's the one that cares for the vine. But basically he's saying, my, my father is the farmer. I'm the vine. You're the branches. And notice what the father's intention is. The bearing of fruit. In fact, Jesus says, this is what my Father wants. He wants you to be fruitful. And not just fruitful. He wants you to bear much fruit. Jesus then says, in fact, this is how you become my disciples. You bear fruit. And He says, you can't bear fruit unless you abide in Me. Unless you find your habitation in Me. Unless you find in Me your sustenance. Unless you find in Me the nurture of your life. You cannot bear fruit. And not only can you not bear fruit, he says explicitly, you can do not a thing. The Father wants fruit. He wants fruitfulness in our lives. And that fruitfulness only comes as we find ourselves abiding in Jesus, the vine. Finding our life source in Him. Finding our sustenance in Him. He says, in fact, the Father wants so much fruit that if you bear fruit, He's going to start cleaning you up. Pruning you. The um, crate myrtle right out that window, the 
when I was working in landscaping, we called it cleaning up the suckers. It was, you know, you would tear off the little bitty branches that were popping up out of the out of the the bottom of the tree, so that it had a nice kind of lollipop shape. We do that just to make the crepe myrtle look good. On a vine that's bearing fruit, you clean up those suckers, those little bitty twigs, so that the twigs that remain will bear even more fruit. Not just to make the thing look pretty, but so that fruit will come from it. And Jesus says that our Father is so interested in us bearing fruit that He will clean us up, that He will prune us so as to bear more fruit. When we think of fathers, we inescapably think of the fact that they have children. Because there is no father without a child. Just as there is no eternal father without an eternal son, and there is no eternal son without an eternal father, we automatically think of the fruit-bearingness of parenting when we think of Father's Day or Mother's Day. We tend to, in our Western society, we tend to think of fatherhood as kind of a sign of power and strength, a sign of um, greatness and importance. And perhaps the most powerful thing a person can do is have children. Do you realize the the wonder of a baby? I mean, you talk about power. A miracle happens and suddenly there's another person, another soul made in the image of God that would not have been there. That's crazy. The more I think about how life works and the more I think about like the, the, the theological implications of that, the more kind of blown away I am at how much power God puts into our hands and how much He leaves in our not our control, but at least to our influence. And that's how God works. God somehow takes delight in that. Create some more souls. Make some more people in my image. In his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul says that we bow our knees to the eternal Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. He is our Father. And He is the one who has created the family. He is the one who shows us what fatherhood is to be like. 
He is the one who shows us what the apple should look like. He is always good. He is always faithful. Even when it hurts Him. Even when it costs Him. He is the one who is unshakably good. Who is unwaveringly loving. He shows us not just what our best would look like, but shows us what we ought to be. How we ought to live in community with one another. How we ought to relate to others. How we ought to behave. How we ought to show mercy. He is the one. He shows us what our dads should have been like. And He is the one who confirms in our dads those things that have happened to have been good and in keeping with Him. And it's always kind of tough to keep... Um, keep Christian perspective on a day like Father's Day because I realize that so many fathers fall short of what they should be and I recognize that so many fathers even that call themselves Christian have blemishes and some the blemishes are gaping and others They're not quite so gaping, but they're still there. And to say that a man is a Christian father doesn't say that he is without his warts. It doesn't say that he's without his rough edges. It doesn't say that he has done everything perfectly. But I think it does say that he has, at least to some extent, tried to abide in Christ and has tried to bear what fruit he is able to bear. And in thinking about the, the call of the Scriptures and the call of God upon our lives, for the fathers in our lives and for those of us who are fathers, I want to just very quickly run past three things that it seems that God wants from fathers. And we see this because this is what God does for us as our Father. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, Fathers, don't, don't provoke your children to, to wrath. Don't, don't push them. Don't be hard on them. But bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's a very simple statement. But that's a very weighty 
weighty call. Because what God wants from fathers and what fathers should do is, first of all, provide. We live in such a culture that it is becoming increasingly difficult for a father to provide for a family. Extremely difficult. For a lot of families, almost impossible. Because we think provide, that means paycheck. But God calls on fathers not just to provide money in a bank account for their families, but to provide quite a bit more for their families. To provide stability. To provide comfort. To provide assurance. To provide character and guidance. Even in a tough economy where jobs are hard to come by, God does not let fathers off the the hook of providing for their families. Being the one who provides strength, direction, leadership. Fathers should not just provide, but they should defend. It was the father in the Old Testament that was expected and required to be the one that defended the home. Not just from intruders or invaders, but when someone who was part of the family even left the family and found themselves in a pickle. It was the father whose responsibility it was to go and to redeem them. To bring them back. To defend the family. To defend the name of the family. To defend the character of the family. To defend the comfort and safety of the family. It was the father's responsibility. God always does that for us. He protects us. He watches over us. He defends us. He redeems us. Thinking of the image of God, it is He who provided His image in creating us. It is He who defends that image in redeeming us. And it is He who lastly shows us what that image ought to look like as He's renewing us in it. Fathers are thirdly, should teach. There's a responsibility on fathers and mothers, but fathers don't escape this one. You know, fathers typically want to outsource the teaching either to a school or to the mom. 
not just the subjects that the state of Georgia requires uh, us to, uh, to cover and pass, but the teaching of life lessons, the teaching of character, the teaching of morals, the teaching of how to, how to worship God. We'd rather somebody else do the teaching. We, we want to work and provide and defend the family and do what we can to be the macho guys, but we don't want to teach. But the burden rests upon fathers to teach the family how to worship God, how to know Him, how to love Him. You know, one of the greatest ways that dads influence their children is simply by doing. If they hear you say, I really messed up and I'm sorry, they will learn to say, I really messed up and I'm sorry. You know, we recognize that when, when a baby's around because babies, you know, they, they, can't, they can't hardly make noises or anything and then they start making noises and they start saying, you know, goo goo ga ga and eventually that becomes mum mum or da da da. And before you know it, they're saying, you know, mommy, I handsome. And you realize, wait a minute, he, I don't know if he's telling me his name or saying how he looks, but he has actually put together a sentence grammatically very poorly, but he's making sentences. And we recognize that babies are, they learn to talk just by copying. Just by, they're mocking us, really. You make a sound, they try to make it as well. And they're, they're amused when they, when they make it. That sort of modeling doesn't ever go away. That burden of teaching never goes away. A child is much, much more likely to sing in church when he sees his dad singing in church. And I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes about singing or not singing in church. That is merely an example. But you want to have a Christian influence on your children. Model them. Christian behavior and character. They will never know to be faithful unless they see people who are faithful in their lives. They will never know what it is to, or how to, or have any desire to study the Scriptures unless they see that somebody else is doing that. It seems to benefit them. Again, the Scriptures tell us that God our Father wants to see fruit in our lives. He wants us to bear much fruit. He wants to see His image in us, in our families. And He wants to be able to say of us that we are the apple of His eye and that us 
as an apple is right there under the tree. From whence we have drawn our life source to be right there. Another really weird idiom that I uh, thought about this week was the spitting image. Why I got to involve spitting in this image talk? He wants to see in us His image. The spitting image, whatever that means. He wants to see it in us. He wants us to model it in our families. He wants us to model it for others. He wants to see it in us. We serve a God who has done great and mighty things. We serve a God who has been unwaveringly faithful to us. Who has been so good and merciful to us. And He has shown us how we are to live and who we are to be. Let's pray.